Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we are joined today by a guest. We're on an espionage tip again, Jim, aren't we? Well, we are. We just keep getting sucked down that little alleyway, don't we? Uh, but yeah. today we've got someone with just the coolest sounding job, literally, in the UK at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Professor of US National Security at the University of Warwick. It's uh, Chris Moran. Chris, um, thanks for coming on. And you're an expert on on all things espionage. And today we're going to be talking really about Ian Fleming, aren't we? And the double cross and, you know, and, and naval intelligence and whatnot. I'm I'm happy to field any questions that uh, that you and your listeners want to uh, want to throw at me. Uh, Fleming, Fleming has been something of a guilty research pleasure for me. So my, as you say, my, my day job is to research US national security. So I work mainly on the CIA, the history of the CIA. I did a little bit of, of British intelligence as well. So at the moment, I'm writing a book on Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger and the CIA. But there's always been this part of me that wants to sort of just keep my, you know, keep, keep you know, dabble my toe in, in Fleming's waters. I, I've always been interested in, in Ian Fleming. So I've always had this little side project just for, for, for really since going back to the days of my PhD 10, 15 years ago, whenever I've gone in a in an archive or a library, I've always once I've done my sort of main bit of research, whether it's on Richard Nixon or the CIA, I'll always then just have a look in the catalogue and think, OK, what could be in this private collection? What could be in this particular, you know, declassified set of files that might just contain something about Ian Fleming? And that's the only way to research Ian Fleming, because there's no Fleming archive. There's no one set of Fleming papers. You need to you need to work by accretions. You need to find a little bit here, find a little bit there, splice it together, and hopefully you're able to tell an interesting story as a result. Well, uh, a few months ago, when the um, the, la- the latest disgraceful James Bond film came out... Um, <laughs> Just put, put my colours yeah, on here. The, the ending, uh, huh? Um, the ending, huh? The ending, yeah, what the hell? OK, well, we can talk about that in a minute. But, but, but um, <laughs> our... our, our our younger sister podcast, the rest is history. Did um, mm. uh, with my brother Tom and Dominic Sambrook did 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 one on James Bond and Ian Fleming. And Dominic Sambrook was arguing very strongly that Ian Fleming was actually a bit of a waste or didn't really achieve much in the war. Um, was 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 the sort of thicko in the family compared to his his brilliant older brother Peter, and basically only got his publishing deal because of Peter kind of sort of wangling things with the publishers and all the rest of it. But um, you know, is Dominic right? You know, is is Ian Fleming a bit of a charade and a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, um, you know, is he all talk and and um, and and sort of telling porkies about his what he got up to in the Second World War, or is he the real deal? Was he really influential and uh, playing a key role in, sure. in naval intelligence? See, ordinarily, I, I would kiss the ring of of, of Dominic's uh, scholarship. You know, absolutely brilliant, <laughs> brilliant scholar and, and, and historian. But 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 but, but on this one, uh, if you put Dominic and I in a room with you two guys, I guess I would be the skunk at that particular picnic. 
Um, <laughs> be, 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 because you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there, and we'll do a deep dive into this topic. I'm sure over the next hour or so. You know, I I you're right. There there is this conventional wisdom. There is this orthodoxy about Ian Fleming that he was fairly fairly low on the organisational flow chart uh, within wartime naval intelligence. There's this orthodoxy that he had not a great deal of access to 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 real secrets he was more of a pen pusher uh there's a lovely line in 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 by 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 one one writer called John Sutherland and he said um he he described Fleming's wartime experiences as Fleming doing nothing nothing more than pushing uh in trays out trays and ashtrays all day long um but i i i i want to go against that i want to suggest actually that that Fleming um was right at the heart of the British naval intelligence machinery uh, throughout the Second World War. Uh, we'll do a deep dive into that. I want to suggest that he had access to um, pretty much all the main secrets um, that were being held so closely within the bosom of, of the British intelligence machine during the Second World War, including he was privy to uh, what was going on at Bletchley Park, which was the, 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 the holiest of holies. I want to put it to you that he had very sensitive dealings across the Atlantic with um, a burgeoning, blossoming intelligence apparatus in the United States. But I also want to put it to you that um, actually it's incorrect to talk in terms of Fleming's intelligence career as just being 1939 to 1945. I want to put it to you and your listeners that actually during the 1930s, he was pulling off quite a bit of freelance spy work for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office using journalistic cover, using his journalistic cover to, um, to to collect incidental intelligence on the Soviet Union. And I also want to put it to you that he, 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 he remained um, pretty close to a whole host of interesting intelligence characters, personalities after the Second World War. Um, perhaps most notably, he struck up... Um, a very close friendship. Uh, friendship is is the right word, actually, not just a professional relationship, but a very close friendship with CIA director Alan Dulles from the mid nineteen fifties into the early nineteen sixties, and that yielded some some interesting things as well. So, uh, you know, with, with all due and and and, and wonderful respect to, to Dominic, we are going to be taking <laughs> conversation in a slightly no, in a that. slightly That's different great. direction today. So, so, Chris, so, Chris, how did Fleming get started in in espionage? Then, if if it's the because after all, you say he uses his journalistic cover. That's a fairly traditional um, uh, point of adjacency, isn't it? Journalism yeah. and 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 espionage. Because after all, you're sort of doing the same job, sort of doing the same <laughs> job, aren't you? You're trying to find out stuff, you're trying to get people to tell you stuff. Um, uh, it, it's just that the the the, the, the espionage. Uh, side of things might keep that information secret, and uh, mm. whereas a journalist seeks to publish. So is that is that really how he how he how he how he got uh, going? Uh, just 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 to just to piggyback on onto what you're saying, and of course, um, journalists, spies, they both passionately guard their sources and methods. Of course, you know you won't get a journalist um, telling you you know what's the source that underpins their stories, and equally, you won't get an intelligence officer. Who, who reveals what what assets and agents are are on the payroll? So yeah, absolutely, and a fascinating overlap between 
the second oldest profession and uh, and, 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 and and the fourth estate. Um, but yeah, so how, how did how did Fleming get into this world? Um, well, should we should we do a bit of, a bit of background on Fleming? I mean, you know, who is he? And and um, we know he he went to Eton, didn't he? And he's got an older brother called Peter, and that's basically and he smoked an awful lot of cigarettes. Um, and ate a lot of scrambled eggs. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what's his background? So um, it would be useful to have a little bit on that. Well, he was born to um, to, to, to to a wealthy family. There's there's no disputing that. Uh, whatever way you cut it, he was born to um, a descendant of a wealthy merchant banker. Uh, his father, uh, Valentine Fleming, uh, was a Conservative MP. Uh, Valentine was also quite good chums with Winston Churchill uh, in the early 1900s, going into the, the First World War period. Um, sadly, his father, Valentine, passed away on the Western Front during the First World War. Winston Churchill actually wrote uh, an obituary for Valentine Fleming uh, in, in, in the Times, um, suitably gushing about uh, about Valentine and his politics and, and such forth. And so, yeah, so Fleming came from that world. He um, he did a little bit of time at Sandhurst, did a little bit of time at, at Eton. He also went to a... His mother was quite disappointed with, with, with Ian, uh, saw him as something of, of, of a juvenile delinquent at times. So he went off to a finishing school in, in Austria, uh, where, interesting, this is one of these fascinating little spy connections. Uh, the, uh, Fleming's headmaster uh, at this particular finishing school was a former MI6 station chief. Uh, of course, it's not known how much information that headmaster gave Fleming about his, uh, his, 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 his involvement in the secret world. But it's one of those interesting connections nonetheless. And then eventually, you know, Fleming tries his hand at a little bit of the family business, tries his hand uh, a little bit of banking, but eventually comes, um, starts to work for, for, for The Times. By 1933, he, he's working for The Times. He's working as a journalist. And... Um, his his paymasters, his bosses send him to uh, to Moscow. They send him to Moscow to cover the trial of six British engineers uh, who were working for Metro Vickers, accused of espionage. This was a Stalinist show trial. There was yeah, these are the the people who've built the Moscow Underground, aren't they? This was a show trial. I think I think <laughs> the, the the historians who who've done a real deep dive into this particular um, subject have found no evidence of to corroborate the charges that were were, were levelled against these chaps. Espionage, uh, subversion, sabotage. But nonetheless, they were they they, they, they were convicted. Um, but Fleming Fleming covered this trial. He covered this trial absolutely brilliantly. And um, he stole a march on all of the far more experienced, arguably at that time, far more talented journalists who were covering the trial from, from other newspapers in London. He stole a march on them by basically behaving like a spy. So uh, on the day of the verdict of the trial, uh, the night before Ian Fleming crept into the courtroom, Lord knows how he avoided all of the uh, the secret police and police officers that were that were protecting the building, but clearly he did. So he crept into the courtroom the night before the the verdict was due, and he cut all of the telephone wires apart from one. So when the verdict was announced the following morning, all of these newspapermen, journalistic types, went running to the telephones, picked up the phones, and of course they couldn't get through to their bosses in London. Ian, of course, went to the only telephone in the building that wasn't cut and immediately relay the information that these guys had been sent down and the Foreign Office better get their act together and work out some sort of diplomatic deal or these guys are going to be sent off to some gulag, presumably in, in Siberia. But it was it was Fleming in, a, in an early instance sort of 
betraying all the hallmarks of a spy. That's brilliant. Excellent. Proper, proper skullduggery. Proper. Yeah, and he also had a young boy on payroll in Moscow. Um, throughout the trial, um, <laughs> of course, it would be bloody freezing in Moscow at the time. Fleming would be giving rubles, rubles, let's call it rubles. He, he was giving um, this young boy rubles to basically stand outside in the cold. And um, the courtroom was up on the third or fourth floor. And Fleming, in order to get a Steeler March on his rival reporters, would scribble notes, and he would drop these notes from the from the from the from the, from the window of the fourth floor courtroom. And this young boy, twelve, thirteen years of age, in the absolute freezing cold, would be waiting there all day. And eventually, a little bit, a little piece of paper would come down the uh, come down the wall. And then, uh, and then, and then, and then the boy would sort of take this piece of paper. He he would find the nearest sort of telegraph office or the nearest telephone and communicate this priceless information back to London. So Fleming had almost his own little sort of spy network uh, that he was running over there. That's amazing. And 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 so so you you could say who's to say he's not also sending that information to the to the foreign office or or, or whoever else you know naval intelligence even whoever whoever whoever's wing he might be under at this point. This is what happened. Um, so in, in 1933, um, people in the Foreign Office, including the permanent undersecretary there, Sir Robert Van Sittert, um, they become aware of, 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 what, of, of Fleming's work in, in the Soviet Union. They're fascinated by his coverage of the trial. Remember, this is, um, this is a time when obviously the Soviet Union was, was a heavily totalitarian state. It was very, very difficult for MI6 and the Foreign Office to get agents and assets behind the Iron Curtain at the time. So having Fleming there as their kind of eyes and ears in 1933 was, was, was hugely advantageous, so much so that later in the decade they actually sent him back again to do um, further freelance spy work in Moscow, uh, again using this, this, this journalistic identity. And, and actually the, the last trip that he did uh, in, in 1938 uh, when he got back to London, he produced quite a lengthy report for the Soviet Union. Um, and, and the report was entitled something like The Soviet Union, Its Strengths and Weaknesses. And it was an, it was incredibly prescient. You know, Fleming really had a remarkable crystal ball with, with this report. He, he basically says, um, one of my main conclusions here is that um, we can't trust the Soviets. We will have to join. We, we, you know, we will have to ally with them in order to 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 defeat fascism, in order to be to defeat Nazism. But in his words, this should not blind us from the fact one day a major ideological struggle will have to take place between the West and the East. So he's writing that in 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 nineteen thirty eight. Fascinatingly, that particular report he gave to the Times. He gave one copy to the Times and he gave another copy to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office appreciated it. The Times thought, mm, actually, we don't think our, our, our readers are going to be particularly interested in this. We think your conclusions are off. Uh, actually, we don't want you sort of talking ill of, 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 of Uncle Joe Stalin at this point. Um, so we're not going to publish it. But all of these all of these connections and things that he was doing in the 1930s, as, as James said a moment ago, clearly had an impact in, in, in the secret corridors of power because no sooner had the Second World War um, kicked off that, that Fleming had, a, had, 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 your sort of, had your tap on the shoulder. And he was tapped on the shoulder by Admiral Sir John Godfrey, the director of wartime 
naval intelligence at the Admiralty there um, to join Godfrey, to join him as, uh, as, 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 as personal assistant to join as Godfrey's personal assistant. And we might do a deep dive in, in, into exactly some of the, um, the responsibilities and duties that, that he had. Well, let's do exactly that, Chris. So, so the, the received view is, well, he's just his secretary. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, he, he's basically the, on the desk you've got to get past to see Godfrey. And that's basically, that's as far as it goes. And we know that there's all these memos where he's firing off crazy schemes all day long and, and, you know, mince meat, of course, is one of the ideas that sticks, and then there's plenty of ideas that don't stick, and that's the sort of the, the sort of received view. But if he's if, if Godfrey Godfrey's an incredibly important and central character in in, in British intelligence, I mean, if if Fleming's his secretary, that might that could also mean that what Godfrey knows, he knows. That that's the other other way of looking at it, right? And Godfrey actually said that in in his um, memoirs that were eventually published twenty years or so after the war. Godfrey actually said that um, what these were Godfrey's words. What what I knew, Ian knew, and he did that because, in, again, to, to 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 quote Godfrey, Godfrey said, "If if I if I you know if anything ever happened to me, if I got if I got sick, I wanted to ensure the continuity of the department. I wanted to ensure that there was someone there in the Admiralty." Who knew everything? Who could step into my shoes and 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 you know continue what we were doing? So, I mean, there are so many layers to this. It's it's like peeling you know back layers of, of an onion. Where to even begin with with the with the breadth and depth of of, of intelligence work that, that that Fleming was was involved in? I, I think straight off the bat, it's 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 worth sort of underscoring the sheer amount of of, of secret information that he had access to. So he was privy. To what was going on at Bletchley Park, as I said earlier, um, that's a big deal. Yeah, you don't, you don't. They don't hand that out to anyone, do they? By any stretch of imagination. In fact, they hand that out to that kind of knowledge to very, very few. Exactly. So we know that only half of Winston Churchill's war cabinet were privy to what was going on at Bletchley Park. <laughs> that means there were very, very senior ministers who had, you know, you mentioned the words enigma to them. You mentioned the words colossus to them. Uh, you know, they would just they would just look blankly at you. That it wouldn't mean anything to them, but it would mean something to 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 Fleming. We know that um, Ian Fleming uh, devised certain operations with Bletchley alumnus, Cambridge math, math, mathematical wizard Alan Turing. That's a big deal. Fleming had FaceTime interaction, uh, not over Zoom. He had FaceTime with. Alan Turing, you know, one of the one of the one of the masterminds of, of, of the British war effort there. That's a big deal. Fleming was um, Godfrey's designated liaison with all of the secret departments in Whitehall, special operations executive, SOE, the political warfare executive, PWE, MI5, MI6, the government code and cipher school at Bletchley Park I've just mentioned. Fleming also this this I find presumably air intelligence as well all all of that yeah air intelligence absolutely spot on Fleming also sat in on sat in on meetings of Britain's Joint Intelligence Committee I mean that Britain's the JIC Joint Intelligence Committee this is this is the senior assessment body that pulls together it's the locus where all of the intelligence that is coming in from humans all comes together all comes together it's it's like the filter room isn't it absolutely absolutely so. 
Fleming, we know uh, on on occasions when the chairman of the JIT, Cavendish Bentick, was unavailable, it would be Fleming who would chair those meetings. That, that's just mind boggling. You know, the creator of James Bond, the, the person who came up with such, you know, memorable characters as Pussy Galore and Jaws and all of this. He was chairing <laughs> meetings of, of, of Britain's senior in, 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 in intelligence assessment body where... Um, Raw intelligence would also be discussed. You know, at the JIC, um, you get the estimates, you get the assessments being discussed, but occasionally you also get the raw decrypts. You get the raw intelligence, the raw humans put before the JIC. Um, you know, this is real holy grail material. So Fleming would have been would have been privy to that. Our listeners aren't necessarily directly au fait with human sigint. What what the difference between raw and sort of um, interpreted intelligence is. Can can you just quickly do you know do a do a, a, a um you know a dummy's guide to 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 how intelligence works in this you know at that meeting for instance. Yeah. So so human intelligence um is is intelligence that's gathered by human sources by human beings people. Signals intelligence uh, at that time was 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 information intelligence gathered by breaking codes by cryptography. Um, it also it would also be a shorthand today in the 21st century. SIGINT would also be a shorthand for the sort of information that GCHQ and NSA would collect from um, from the Internet, from Facebook, from social media, be it in metadata or, 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 or content driven uh, intelligence analysis. There would be imagery intelligence coming through. There would be a primitive form of geospatial intelligence, satellite reconnaissance, anything that's anything that's that, that that's coming in from um from, from across Whitehall really, from from human or or technical sources, Fleming would 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 have his hands on. I, I think for your listeners actually, in trying to sort of get their heads around, you know, what intelligence is, I think I'd bring to conversation that the the, the, the very memorable quote by uh, a scholar called Michael Warner. And he describes intelligence as secret state activity to understand or influence foreign entities. Secret state activity to understand or influence foreign entities. Now, ostensibly, on the surface of things at first blush... Is that an acronym? I'm trying to work out whether that's an acronym or not. <laughs> not quite. To think about that, yeah. <laughs> star. I got as far as star. <laughs> so at first, at first blush... That looks a pretty good description, doesn't it, of 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 what intelligence is all all about, especially in in a twentieth century context. Because in the twentieth century, at the time when Fleming was plying his trade, intelligence was secret. It was a state led affair. It was about understanding the world. It was occasionally about influencing the world, covert action, running special operations, assassination, coup d'etats. It was also about dealing with foreign enemies: Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. But the reason why I bring that, um, we're going down the garden path a little bit, the, the, the reason why I mention that particular um, definition is because, of course, in the 21st century, you could argue that, that that definition is no longer fit for purpose. Why do I say that? The word secret. Well, actually, in the 21st century, a lot of intelligence collection methods are not secret at all. You know, we live in the era of open source intelligence collection. Intelligence agencies are, you know, hoovering up stuff from open sources, from the Internet, in order to divine their, their enemies' intentions and capabilities. The second word, state. Well, even that's a little bit problematic now in 2022. Um, Amazon, Facebook, Tesco, Walmart, these are all producers and consumers of intelligence. 
we know that uh, intelligence agencies in the, in the 21st century have built a lot more state private networks. You know, they're in bed with a lot of people in Silicon Valley in order to enhance um, their national security efforts. So that's problematic as well. And then, of course, the, the final bit of the definition that intelligence is all about understanding and influencing foreign, foreign enemies. Well, that's problematic as well, because, of course, a lot of intelligence, especially in the era of, of terrorism and transnational threats, um, threats that know no borders, you know, a lot of a lot of surveillance, domestic surveillance, domestic intelligence is is is, is focused on the homeland. So that 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 might provide a useful um, little entree to, to some of your listeners that, that 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 maybe you know want to know a little bit more about how scholars of intelligence, uh, diplomatic historians, scholars of IR think about intelligence. But but I think it's it's worth underscoring for Fleming, the definition of intelligence was secret state intelligence to understand or influence foreign enemies. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I suppose one of the reasons why Fleming's had, had a sort of comparatively bad press uh, as regards his own um, intelligence career is probably because the people that are writing biographies of him don't understand how intelligence works and don't have that insight into, you know, state and secret intelligence that someone like yourself does, Chris. So they're not able to contextualise 
What it is, they just see him as assistant to Godfrey, and that just basically they just think of him as sort of glorified pen pusher, which is well, they think he's Miss Money Penny, don't they? They just think he's just Miss Money Penny. But he he said outside M's office, yeah, right. (laughs) So, so you can see how those conclusions have have been drawn, but 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 it's but it's fascinating hearing from you who can sort of uh, um, sort of decipher to use a kind of good term, um, what it is he's doing in a way that is. Gives us much greater clarity than a lot of other people. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I I think the criticism of Fleming in this regard is 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 twofold. One, I I absolutely agree with you. And um, perhaps if if you if if you're not that familiar with this subject and you're presented by the the alphabet soup of agencies that Fleming was liaising with, JIC, what's the JIC? SOE, what's SOE? PWE, what's that? You know, unless you know what these departments are and what their significance was, then you would you would miss Fleming's larger significance there. I, I also think, secondly, that, that, that a lot of the criticism, especially that came at Fleming in, in the 60s and 70s, I, I have to I, I have to sort of posit really the thesis that a lot of it was drawn from the acid of envy. I think, um, you know, the remarkable commercial success that, that Ian Fleming had. Um, we know that, that, that John le Carre, um, it really stuck in le, in le Carre's craw when President Kennedy uh, in 1960, 1961, named From Russia With Love as one of his 10 favourite novels of the year, you know, for the sort of gritty, cerebral, realist spy master uh, writer of spy thrillers like the Carre, that really hurt. That 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 was a punch to the chest. That was a real sort of sucker punch. So I think some of the criticisms, yeah, are, are, are just a reflection of 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 envy on the part of of of, of authors and critics who who perhaps didn't achieve the same commercial but, success. But I, planning. but well, well, I'm sure you're right about that. But I also think think that you know what's absolutely clear is is you know from what I, from the limited amount of um, information i know about kind of wartime intelligence is that you simply don't pass through all these different intelligence organizations unless you're pretty high up the food chain because because otherwise if you're if you're just a pen pusher for admiral godfrey you stay in the admiralty you don't go anywhere outside of that you know that is your, your thing but if you're going to the JIC you're going to the PWE you're going to you're liaising with MI6 and 5 and um and um and the various SOEs and all the rest of it then that means that you've got total access and if you've got total access then then you're you're high up the up the chain aren't you it's as simple as that that's exactly it because people what people know about for instance Bletchley Park is everyone there is siloed and and you work if you work at one end of the hut you don't know what the people at the at the other end of the hut are doing and you certainly don't know what they're doing in the next hut you probably think it's something similar but you've no idea and everyone's siloed and everyone's you know everyone's hived off and even even when you you, you know you look at how SOE and MI6 interrelate relate to one another you know, the SOE have, has been inf- infiltrated by MOS, M- MI6, so you know, it, you know, so they can, so they can basically find out what's going on. But essentially, the, these are all organisations that that try not to cross pollinate uh, and do their damnedest not to. So if there's someone who's actually in contact with all these organisations, I mean, he, he, I mean, he knew about the Manhattan Project, right? He knew, he, he, he knew about that. I mean, that's again, that's incredible. If you know about. If you know about Ultra and that and SOE and I mean, you know, you know as much as Churchill, right? You you both make your point brilliantly. You know, 
the, the, the essence of, of how intelligence organisations worked during that time and still to a large extent today was compartmentalised knowledge, compartmentalised knowledge, the need to know principle, not need to share. My God, Fleming would be horrified at the idea of the need to share principle. It's all need to know. You, you, you restrict as much as possible knowledge of what is going on and you restrict it to just a handful of people. So for Fleming to be sort of going between all of these different silos um, and having a bird's eye view, having a bird's eye view of, 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 of what's going on in all these silos and how the work of these silos all comes together to aid policymakers, to aid Winston Churchill, that's, that's, that's pretty stunning in, in my eyes. What, are, what do you need to be able to do? So you've, you've got to have that, that journalist's kind of nose for squirrelling out a story, for getting to the essence of the truth. You've got to have presumably that ability to see that overview, to see to be able to contextualise things, to be able to see that, that bigger picture. You've obviously, it goes without saying, that you've got to be completely and utterly trustworthy. Um, you know, does it help to present a, a, a slightly false facade? I, d I don't know. I mean, you know, how much sort of smoke and mirrors is, is, is going on? I mean, what, what is it that, that would make Fleming such a key character and, and so trusted? I, I think I think one of the, 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 the parts of Fleming's character that uh, endeared him to so many... Um, was his willingness to, you, you hear this phrase in, in a lot of contexts, his willingness to speak truth unto power. You know, this was someone who was not, this was someone who was not afraid to give his opinions. This was someone who was not afraid to say to senior policymakers, sen other senior intelligence officers, senior members of the war cabinet, I disagree here. I disagree because the intelligence is saying something different. You know, um, if, if, if a senior policymaking, if, if, if someone in the senior policymaking community comes along and starts to sort of pitch uh, a, a sort of a predetermined or preordained political point of view, starts to push for a particular operation based on their understanding, Fleming was confident enough, you might even say arrogant enough, to turn around to that individual and say, stop, I respectfully disagree because the intelligence that we have is saying something different. Um, so there was no spin. There was no spin from, from, from Fleming. He wasn't just in the business of telling senior policymakers what they wanted to hear. Quite the opposite. He would, he would test their, their, their theories. He would test their hypothesis. He would play devil's advocate. He would play devil's advocate, and they appreciated that. I, I think another point that I would make here, because th this was a point that was made by by Alan Dulles, so long after the Second World War. Well, actually, they 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 they, they met in nineteen fifty, I think, for the first time. But certainly by nineteen fifty five and into the early nineteen sixties, Fleming was 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 good chums with CI director Alan Dulles, and we might talk about that in in more detail later. But 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 Dulles was asked once. Why are you liking Fleming? You know, Fleming is a, is is the writer of spy thrillers. You know, he's coming up with characters like Pussy Galore. He's he's coming up with characters like Goldfinger uh, and 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 Doctor No with his pincer hands. How can someone? How can a serious spy master, the head of the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States? be friends with Ian Fleming and, and, and have signed hardback copies of James Bond novels in his own personal library. How, how can a CIA director 
send recently published copies of James Bond novels to President Kennedy with annotations saying, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. And Dulles's response was, I liked Fleming and I liked Bond because Fleming was, to use Churchill's phrase, a corkscrew thinker. Fleming was a corkscrew thinker. He was someone who, um, I'm mixing my metaphors, someone who thought outside of the box, someone who was prepared to go against the grain of conventional wisdom. I think for, for Fleming seniors during the Second World War and also for Dulles, these were individuals that felt, you know, in, in order to break the stalemate, in order to break the stalemate of the Cold War or before it, in order to break the stalemate um, of, of, of the Second World War, in order to, you know, deal a decisive blow to the Nazi war machine, you needed people who would come up with crazy schemes. And Fleming was, uh, well, he, 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 he created his, his fair share of, of crazy schemes. Um, it was often said, wasn't it? You know, I think it was in Alan Brooks' diaries that, you know, Churchill was the same. Churchill would come up with a hundred crazy schemes a day and it was Alan Brooks' job to sort of, you know, seize on just, seize on just one of them. Fleming was built the same way. He would have a hundred crazy schemes a day, but there would be one, there would be one that would have something to it. And all of his bosses... Yes, I suppose the problem, the problem is, though, it's very easy to, to not take them seriously at all because how do you kind of separate the kind of, you know, the wheat from the chaff and, and you know, how do you not just sort of get a... You know, how do you not get a reputation for just sort of chucking loads of mud at the wall and hoping someone will stick? That, that, that then has associations of being a little bit feckless and a bit careless. And certainly his early life, running a mock at, at, at Eton and getting in trouble with girls and stuff and being disrespectful and, you know, his affairs and his life and all the rest of it, that, that, that suggests a slightly sort of careless, feckless character. But then... But then maybe maybe all that's his cover story. What you're, well, maybe, you know, maybe yes. Because if if he's a spot, if he's a brilliant, you know, he knows that he has to present an exterior that that, that puts you. You know, is James Bond in a way Ian Fleming's cover story that he's written something essentially sort of glamorous and and frivolous and uh, and you know arguably unserious, which is after all Lacare's problem with it, isn't it? It's all unserious and it's ridiculous. Well, well yes, and he's also you know, got these affectations, hasn't he? The, you know, the exactly. older and the bow ties and sort of looking a little bit fay, you know, and and and, and know, that, that famous Cecil Beaton photograph of him exactly with a cigarette and the smoke everywhere, and you know, and you end up talking about that rather than the fact that um, you know he chaired JIT committees. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, fair, it's a fair point. <laughs> JIT meetings, point. you know. It, it, but I think that's uh, the paradox, isn't it? I mean, that that yeah. is the, the you, you know, and and the, the, you know, on the one hand, you've got this slightly feckless character, the the the, the philanderer, the kind of slightly debonair, slightly self consciously debonair with the cigarette holder and all the rest of it in the bow ties. You've got the guy who's constantly coming up with sort of endless, bonkers ideas, and on the other hand, you've got the person who's deadly serious, completely trustworthy, got eyes on absolutely everything. And the two don't quite sort of go go together. But but as you say, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's. I, I think he it. got. I think I think Fleming got a lot of credit in the bank. He got a lot of credit in the bank um, by establishing the forty unit assault assault squad. So this was, you know, how would I describe the 40-unit assault squad? It was, it was an authorised team of commandos, pirates, thieves, swashbucklers, whatever you want to call them, hard men. Hard men who, who you know, were not afraid to stare death in the eye 
who effectively had nine lives. These were hard men who parachuted in behind enemy lines in advance of the uh, advancing Allied troops in order to try and gather up as much intelligence and information as they could before the Nazis destroyed that 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 information. So, so is it true that he's sort of really behind he was, the kind he of, was the of brain. mind operations command? Yeah, I, I, all, all, all the information that I've read down at the National Archives in Kew... Um, Suggest, suggest that, that 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 Fleming was undoubtedly the brainchild of of, of this. In fact, to, to the ex- of the commandos, to the extent where they were nicknamed Fleming's commandos. You know, they were interchangeably nicknamed the Red Indian Red Indians and Fleming's commandos. And um, the hall, you know, the the intelligence load that these commandos um, collect. Fleming would basically issue shopping lists. He'd be there in Whitehall. And he would basically say to his commandos, "Okay, you've got two days to go and get this. You've got two days to go and get a cipher machine. You've got two days to go. And we think that there's a a small prototype submarine there, German submarine. We want you to get your hands on that. And that's what they do. They they, they would use um, high speed jeeps to race ahead of uh, of of the the advancing allied forces or they would parachute in and they would collect this stuff. And um, we know it was in it was in late forty four, I think. Um, the forty unit assault squad ransacked um, Tambak Castle, which was this sort of Nazi outpost. And from the castle, uh, they collected some one hundred tons of uh, Nazi, well, German naval uh, war logs, going all the way back to the Franco-Prussian War in the eighteen seventies. It was such a large. Well, it was 100 tons, for Lord's sake. It was such a large amount of, 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 of stuff that they Fleming actually had to he had to get he had to acquire a naval vessel, I think, to get it all back to to the UK. So he, he definitely had credit in the bank there. So for for every crazy scheme that he came up with that was instantly dismissed, he had credit in the bank from the 40 unit assault squad. And he also had credit in the bank, uh, I believe, from uh, his work with uh, the nascent American intelligence communities. So from 1942 onwards, um, the Brits were really, you know, I find really 1941, really, they were they were leaning on the Americans to to start taking intelligence seriously. So and the Americans hadn't, had they? Because they thought it was ungentlemanly and you don't listen to the other chaps' messages and, and all that. They'd actually, they actually eschewed the idea of doing it at all, which, I mean, given given now how people view America and the NSA and the CIA, seems basically seems unbelievable, the idea that the Americans didn't have an in, and didn't have a positive attitude to intelligence and didn't didn't hadn't invested in it or anything. It, it's amazing. So today, uh, the US, the sprawling US intelligence community comprises 18 agencies and departments. Um, more people have access to top secret, not just secret information, more people have access to top top secret information in the United States than the population of the greater Los Angeles area. Just just think about that for a second. (laughs) But you wind the clock back to 1940, 1941. There was no CIA at the time in 1940. There was no Office of Strategic Services. The closest that the Americans got to a permanent intelligence agency was Herbert Yardley's uh, notorious Black Chamber, uh, a cryptographic bureau that was set up during the First World War that was eventually closed by U.S. Secretary of State Henry Stimson in 1931, might be 1933 now. And Stimson famously said, I'm closing this unit down because it's ungentlemanly, it's un-American. Uh, he famously said, gentlemen do not read other gentlemen's mail. Um, 
So aware of all this, you know, the Brits are, are, are starting to press gang the Americans. They're saying, look, th- th- this just can't go on uh, and, and, and any longer. You are a world power now. You are arguably an imperial power by 1940, 1941. You need to have eyes and ears around the world. So Godfrey and, and Fleming made numerous trips uh, across the pond to, to New York, to Washington, D.C., to meet with like-minded individuals who also felt that the Americans should be taking uh, intelligence a lot more seriously. Who, who did Fleming meet in the Americas? Well, he met up with uh, yeah, General, General Wild Bill Donovan, who, who later became head of the, the OSS, the Office of, of Strategic Services. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Sort of transitions into the CIA, you could argue. Um, he also met up with uh, Bill Stevenson, uh, William Stevenson, uh, who was head of the British Security Coordination in New York, um, based on the on the top floor of the Rockefeller Plaza there. The BSC, the British Security Coordination, was basically code name. was a code name for it. It was the operational arm of MI6 in in in, in the Americas. Um, Is that that's a man called Intrepid, isn't it? Man, I mean, Man called man called intrepid. Actually, we know from several declassified reports now that when Fleming um, eventually got to Washington, uh, he was put in a room in an annex at the British Embassy there and asked to sketch out asked to sketch out a blueprint for a permanent American foreign intelligence agency. We have it from sources that Fleming did this in three or four days. Uh, we also have it from sources that William Donovan was so impressed by this blueprint, so impressed by this sort of proto-charter for the CIA that Donovan gifted him uh, a Colt revolver as a gift. And the revolver was inscribed with the words for special services. We know that Fleming went up to Lake Ontario to train uh, with... Um, the small number of American intelligence officers that were based up at Camp 20, which was a training facility for Army and and Naval intelligence officers up there. We know that Fleming excelled, actually, in some of the training exercises. So one of the exercises required all of the the, the trainees, all of the recruits to to basically don their, 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 their frogman gear, their scuba gear, and attach a limpet mine underneath uh, a vessel that was there in Lake Ontario. But of course, this was sort of frogman infested waters and all of the other all of the other recruits, you know, had their air pipes sort of cut immediately and rose to the surface. Fleming, because he was a very good swimmer, very, very strong swimmer. And he was good with an aqualung. He was the only recruit to actually make it out to the vessel to put this limpet mine on undetected. Another another mission uh, that all the recruits. But he was a, he was a very good athlete as well, wasn't he? Yeah, very good athlete. There's a couple of sort of quite famous um, photographs of, of Fleming in sort of you know white t-shirt and white shorts at Eton, sort of beating the rest of the competition on the playing fields there. And another mission that he was set on. All of the recruits uh, were told um, that you you've basically got to place a bomb. You've got to place a bomb in a power station in Toronto. Which is a very hard thing to do because lots, lots and lots of security there, as you would expect for a power plant. So all of the other recruits basically failed, uh, and they failed because they did stupid things like try to wear silly disguises that fooled no one. They would try some, you know, Tom Cruise Mission Impossible acrobatic stunt under the cover of nightfall, but end up just, you know, embarrassing themselves. Fleming basically just picked up the phone to the owner of the power station. In his sort of, you know, cut glass, you know, the, the most cut glass Etonian accent he could put on, 
said, I'm a very, very important person and I'm considering uh, buying your power station for a huge sum of, 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 of money, uh, managed to secure himself a meeting with the owner of the power plant, put on his best Savile Row threads, buffed up his shoes, looked, you know, very, very dapper, turned up, had his meeting, uh, unbeknownst to everyone in the power plant, when they weren't looking, crept into the toilet and dropped the bomb, then went back to Camp, Cent Camp 20 and said, I've done it. And he got top marks and he was the only person to do that. <laughs> Wow, that's impressive. So he's for real. Well, so you could argue when people say, well, who, who's James Bond based on? Um, who, who did Fleming have in mind? This is himself to yeah. an extent. Uh, if he's frogmanning his way into places and charming his way into other, you know, the, 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 why do you have to look for anybody else? It's a, he's a very good candidate, actually, for, for inspiration for James <laughs> Bond. I mean, to add, we, we know that Fleming also performed interrogations. Uh, interrogations of captured uh, German naval officers, especially uh, by, by virtue of his job at the Admiralty. But but Fleming's method, favoured method of, of interrogation was not, you know, waterboarding or ripping out fingernails. No, 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 no. What Fleming would do is he would take the uh, the captured German naval officer along to Savile Row. He would buy them a really, really nice suit. He would then take them to Scott's restaurant on the West End. He would ply them with booze in vino veritas. He would earn their trust. Yeah, this is this is the Thomas Kendrick approach, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and they would start talking. They would start, you know, blab blabbing blabbing secrets. That that was Fleming's approach, you know, the the, the sort of softly, softly catch, catch catchy monkey approach to, to, to interrogation. I th I think another it's often been said another inspiration for, for James Bond is Sir Fitzroy Sir Fitzroy McLean. Yeah, one of the founding members of, of the SAS. We know from the research that we've done here. I looked at some of the the the, the Fitzroy McLean papers, and it, it's interesting. At, at the very moment, at the very moment, when Fleming is in Jamaica writing Casino Royale, he's basically a pen friend of Sir Fitzroy McLean. So at the very moment when the character of Bond is being formed in his mind, as he's tapping away on on his typewriter there, he's in regular correspondence with one of the founding members of 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 the. SAS, you know, I, I mean, McLean later went on to be a diplomat and worked with Tito and the partisans in Yugoslavia. But that's interesting, you know. It, 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 it. So I, I think there's a very compelling argument to make that, that, that McLean, I mean, Bond is ultimately a hybrid of, of many people and personalities that, that Fleming uh, met during his lifetime, inc including himself looking in the mirror. But I think there's a very compelling case that McLean is, is, is etched onto the character of Bond. I, I, I mean, now we're talking about James Bond. I mean, from Russia with Love, the plot in From Russia with Love is Bond breaks into the Russian embassy in, in Constantinople, Istanbul, and steals basically a, an Enigma machine. Now, how, how, if you're from the intelligence community and you're reading that novel in whenever it's mm. written, I can't remember when For Russia with Love is from, what must you think? Like I mean, 58, 59, exactly. What must you think reading that book? Are you thinking, oh God, Fleming's told them all about the Enigma, or or do they think, oh cheeky old Ian, he's you know that th that's that's one way of telling this story, I suppose. You you know what I mean? Because it because it's sort of it's saying a nod and a wink, a, more than a nod and a exactly. wink. Exactly, but because it's in a but because it's in a sort of frivolous spy novel. Are people going to think, well, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. It's not real. It's all a bit far-fetched, isn't it, old boy? Whereas, in fact, that is exactly the sort yeah. of stuff he'd been involved in organising. I'm amazed that got through because we know that um, 
the, all all of Fleming's novels he sent to the Defence Advisory Notice Committee, the DA Notice Committee. So this is a how, how would I describe that to your listeners? So the DA Notice Committee has no, you know, it's not it's not like the Official Secrets Act. It's it's not. You know, it doesn't make it a, a legal, punishable offence to disclose classified information. A denotice committee is basically a compact between the media and authors on the one hand and government on, on the other hand. So basically authors will send articles, newspaper articles, manuscripts to um, the DA notice committee for their view on whether the article in question might contain a little bit of classified information, which, if disclosed, would damage national security. 99 times out of 100, the secretary of the committee will get back to them and say, look, I've, I've, I've passed this around the houses in Whitehall. You're OK here, mate. There's, there's some politically embarrassing stuff. We're not going to slap a D notice on it. You're good to go. But there might just be one occasion where they say, yeah, wherever you've got this information, it's a little bit too close to the truth. You know, that th this is going to have implications. So it's it's doubly astonishing. One, that, 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 that Fleming did this nod and a wink with, with, with the lector machine. In from Russia with love, but it's it's doubly astonishing because some you know this went through the the the, the denotice system. So there would have been people in Whitehall who would have seen this and presumably laid an egg, but <laughs> yeah. nonetheless, nonetheless decided to um to let it go. And, and you you know just to remind your listeners, it wasn't until 1974 with the publication of Group Captain Frederick Winterbottom's book, The Ultra Secret. It was not until 1974 when public knowledge of what went on at Bletchley Park emerged. And he's an interesting character, whoever there was one, Fred Winterbottom. He's also an, a man who, who's incredibly urbane and charming and fingers in multiple different pies. He might be an air intelligence, but he's got the ear of all sorts of people. It's, it's, it's astonishing. He was, he was an interesting pick to, 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 to write that book because obviously he was, uh, he was not a John Masterman. He was not, you know, a head of the Double Cross Committee at MI5. You know, he was a, he was a, mere, a mere group captain. Um, he had some of the, um, the, 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 the technical knowledge, perhaps, of, of what went on at Bletchley, but he, he didn't have the, 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 the bigger picture. But, but the story, as I understand it, I've done a little bit of research in this area, was that basically by the early 1970s, um, Whitehall was absolutely convinced that Anthony Cave Brown, uh, an author over whom they had no control, because he was outside of, I think he was writing in North America at the time, he had Yale University Press as a publisher, uh, so he was outside of U U uh, UK jurisdiction. They had it on very, very good authority that Anthony Cave Brown was going to reveal what went on at Bletchley Park. So a decision was taken um, in the Cabinet Office in consultation with the secret agencies. We need to get this story out now at a time of our choosing, at an authorship of our choosing. Because if we don't, Cave Brown is going to come out. And Cave Brown did come out in 1975, Bodyguard of Lies, published you know, all about Bletchley Park. The authorities concluded that we either get this story out now through Winterbottom or Cave Brown is going to come along in 1975. And what's the story he's going to tell? Well, he's not going to paint Bletchley in a positive light. He's going to talk about Churchill and the bombing of Coventry, letting Coventry Cathedral be smashed up in order to disguise what was going on there. Gosh, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I find this so compelling because, after all, there is the, there is the sort of the Fleming... Uh, of you know of the the, the the like I said the cover story of Ian Fleming that sort of people have fallen for and then there's this you know clearly very very smart man and and, and you know the in a way the from Russia with love thing sounds like he's a bit of a, he's a, he's a prankster too is he's is he's he's That's sort my of favorite um, on that one yeah well it's a it's a it's yeah exactly yeah because it's 
It's a proper spy story, isn't it? Anyway, um, well, we as ever, we always say we always say this, Chris. When we have a guest on. We could we could talk we could talk all day about this. Um, well, I wouldn't uh, mind talking about some uh, another time talking about yeah, 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 a yeah. different aspect of espionage in the Second World War. I mean, one of one one thing I'm trying to get in my head around, and you you may may know about this, Chris, is what Robert Van Sitter you mentioned earlier on, what he's doing after 1939. Because just down the road from here is a chap called um, Francis Diney, and his father, Mark, um, was the guy who actually, he didn't get the credit for it, but he was the guy who actually came up with the Sten gun. Um, and he was definitely spying on, he was one of Van Sittart's boys, and he was definitely spying in Germany in the 1930s under various covers. And he, he also smuggled out uh, Einstein's cousin or brother or something, who was a silversmith. Uh, out of Nazi Germany in 1939, and I own the German double-breasted leather greatcoat that he brought with him back in 1939. And <laughs> and I want to know a bit more about him and about what he was doing. And there is just nothing out there. And I don't. And, and I know he was working for Mar for Van Sittart, but Van Sittart after 1939 and the um, and the outbreak of war, because obviously he's involved in all those negotiations and stuff in the summer of 19 spring and summer of 1939. After that, you know, it, his trail goes pretty cold. It's probably just because no one's ever bothered to look into it. But anyway, it's a fascinating yeah. But Van thing I'd like to know more about Van Sittart's papers are are open for public and scholarly uh, inspection at Churchill College, Cambridge. Uh, big voluminous um, collection. You know, you need months to 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 get through it all. But um, yeah, Van Sittert's always intrigued me, not least because, um, interestingly, he was one of the first senior people in 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 Whitehall to have just one or two doubts about Sir Roger Hollis, who was MI5 director. He was one of the people who wrote a memo or two, wrote a correspondence or two saying, I'm not sure about this guy. Is he a wrong and is he the sixth member of the Cambridge spy ring? Now, of course, this thesis, you know, was 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 Hollis, you know, a Soviet spy, has been roundly trounced, you know, roundly trounced, despite the best efforts of uh, the late Chapman Pincher. You know, look, you now look at the authorised history of MI5 by Christopher Andrew. You know, it's a very meticulous, you know, destruction of, of Pincher's case about Hollis. But I do find it interesting that Van Sittert had actually reached a similar conclusion to, to Chapman Pincher 60 years before Chapman Pincher reached that conclusion. So, yeah, he's, well, he's, he's an interesting it would be It would be very good to have you back on and well, talk well, about other aspects, sure, other aspects sure, of espionage. Let's make sure we do that. Yeah, that would yeah. be fantastic. Um, Chris, thank you so much for um, coming to talk to us. There is a Fleming exhibition on at the, at, um, the Sol Soldiers of Oxford Trust Museum in, uh, in Woodstock, isn't there? Which is how you and I met, where we... Where, where, um, well, we were set up by my father to talk about Ian Fleming. Um, is that exhibition still running? See, I, I was going to say that we met over cocktails in in the Caribbean, but uh, <laughs> if, if you prefer Woodstock, if you prefer Woodstock on a on a rainy winter's day, then sure, sure, uh, ab absolutely. The, uh, the 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 um, the Spy Oxfordshire exhibition at the Soldiers of Oxfordshire um, Museum in Woodstock. Um, we, we, because of COVID and various lockdowns, sadly, you know, it didn't open for for a long while. But it's it's open now, and it will remain open long until long into the summer. So so do please, if you get an opportunity, go go look at it. Yes, it's a terrific exhibition. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we'll have Chris back, um, uh, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of what Vancey Tart's up to, Jim. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, thank you, Chris. That's been fascinating. Cheers, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure. Cheers, everyone. Pleasure. Bye, bye.